0: Second Corinthians chapter twelve, verses one through six. It is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who fourteen years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows. Such a one was caught up to the third heaven. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body I do not know, God knows how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which is not lawful for a man to utter. Of such a one I will boast, yet of myself I will not boast except in my infirmities. For though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will speak the truth. But I refrain, lest any one should think of me above what he sees me to be or hears from me. So these super apostles that were among the Corinthian Christians, no doubt that they also claimed many spectacular spiritual experiences like visions and revelations of the Lord. Paul has reluctantly boasted since that last chapter, so now he's going to boast of his own visions and revelations of the Lord. And Paul is tired of writing about himself. He would rather write about Jesus, but the worldly thinking that made the Corinthians think so little of Paul made them also think so little of Jesus, even if they couldn't perceive it. And so these visions and Revelation, Whether they concern angels, Jesus, heaven, or other things, these things are more common in the New Testament than we might think. Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, had a vision of an angel in Luke chapter 1 verses 8 through 23. Jesus' transfiguration is described as a vision for the disciples in Matthew 17 verse 9. The woman who came to visit Jesus' tomb had a vision of angels in Luke 24 verse 22 through 24. Stephen saw a vision of Jesus at his death in Acts 7, Ananias experienced a vision telling him to go to Saul in Acts 9. Peter had a vision of the clean and unclean animals in Acts 10 and 11, and he also had a vision of the angel at his release from prison in Acts chapter 12. John had many visions on Patmos in Revelation chapter 1, and Paul had a revelation of Jesus on the road to Damascus in Acts 22 and 26. And Paul had a vision of a man from Macedonia asking him to come to that region to help in Acts 16. And Paul also had an encouraging vision while in Corinth in Acts 18. And Paul had a vision of an angel on the ship that was about to be wrecked in Acts 27. So we should not be surprised if God should speak to us through some type of visions and revelations of the Lord. But... We do understand that such experiences are subjective and prone to misunderstanding and misapplication. In addition, whatever real benefits there are to visions and revelations of the Lord, they are almost always limited to the person who receives the visions and revelations. We We should rather be cautious when someone reports a vision or revelation they have regarding us. And so, how often people have wanted to tell me about their visions, right? I'm always suspicious. I want to know what they had for supper the night before. If people had visions of this sort, they're silent about them, right? And so Paul describes this experience in the third person instead of the first person. He didn't say, I myself had this experience. This is going to make some wonder if he's really speaking about himself here or if he's speaking about someone else, But because he transitions into the first person in verse 7, we may be assured that he's really writing about himself. So why does he even use the third person at all? Because Paul, in describing this remarkable experience, is describing just the kind of thing that these super apostles among the Corinthians would glory in. When he described his humble experience in uh, chapter 11, verse 23 through 30, he did not hesitate to write in the first person. No one would think that he was glorifying himself as these super apostles did. But here he's walking more carefully. Paul does everything he can to relate this experience without bringing glory to himself. So 14 years ago, this dating by Paul does little to help us know when this happened because scholars are not in agreement regarding when 2 Corinthians was written. There have been suggestions have been made that the experience he described happened during Paul's 10 years in Syria and Cilicia in Galatians chapter 1 through chapter 2, or at his stoning in Lystria in Acts 14, or at his time in Antioch in Acts 13. The important thing to notice is that Paul kept quiet about this for 14 years, and now he's going to mention it reluctantly. And Paul doesn't really know if he was in the body or out of the body during this vision. It seems that in his mind, either one was possible. So many might ask, what really happened to Paul? Was he carried up in the body to heaven, or did his spirit separate itself from his body to go there? The whole point of the passage is that Paul didn't know. We can't know. And so, in fact, Paul emphasizes the point by repeating the idea twice in verse 2 and verse 3. Therefore, speculation at this point is useless. As he could not decide for himself, it would be ridiculous in us to even try to attempt it. So the third heaven doesn't suggest different levels of heaven, although this is what some ancient Jewish rabbis believed. Instead. Paul is using terminology that's common in that day, which referred to the blue sky as the first heaven, the starry sky as the second heaven, and the place where God lived and reigned as the third heaven. So this one, whom we understand to be Paul himself, was caught up to the heaven where God lives. Paul had a vision or an experience of the throne of God, just like Isaiah did in Isaiah chapter 6 and John in Revelation chapter 4. So Paul is going to identify this third heaven as paradise. The word paradise is taken from the Persian word for an enclosed, luxurious garden that's often only found among royalty in the ancient world. Some early Christians wrongly thought that paradise was the place where souls of believers went after death to await resurrection. Some of them, like the ancient theologian Origen, even believed paradise was located somewhere on the earth's surface. So in describing this heavenly vision, Paul doesn't relate to... Anything he saw, only a shadowy description of what he heard. When we think of this, we realize how different Paul is from most of those who describe their so called visions of heaven today. There is nothing self glorying, self aggrandizing, or foolish in the description of his experience. Paul waited 14 years to say anything about the incident, and when he finally did, he did it reluctantly. He did everything he could in relating the story to take the focus off himself, like writing in the third person. And he doesn't bother at all with breathless descriptions of what he actually experienced. Instead, he says nothing of what he saw and says only of the things that he heard that's not lawful for a man to utter, right? He he heard things that were not lawful for a man to utter. So what did Paul hear? We don't know. They were inexpressible words, which is not lawful for a man to utter. God didn't want us to know, so he didn't give Paul permission to speak. Nevertheless, some commentators cannot resist speculating over this. It's probable that the uh, apostle refers to some communication concerning the divine nature and the divine economy, of which he was only to make a general use in his preaching and writing. So no doubt that what he learned at this time formed the basis of all his doctrines. And so Paul essentially says that this nameless man who had the vision really had something to boast about but Paul himself really could only boast in his infirmities which is exactly what he did in second Corinthians chapter 11. And again Paul is sharply and humorously contrasting himself with these super apostles among the Corinthians. They would not hesitate to boast about the kind of vision that Paul had. In fact they would write books, make tapes and videos, go on speaking tours about such a vision and if they did each of them would be a fool. Paul will not be a fool so he's not going to boast about the vision. At the same time, we almost we almost have a sense here that it was important for Paul to communicate to the Corinthians that he really did have such experiences. Often it's easy to think that the only ones who have these profound experiences with God are the ones who boast about them constantly. Paul never did boast as these super apostles did, but he certainly had profound experiences with God. The proof of those profound experiences was found in his transformed life and powerful, truthful ministry. Therefore, Paul felt that it was important to mention this experience, but not to dwell on it in any way. He wasn't trying to sell himself to the Corinthian Christians. In fact, he holds back from his description, because he didn't want to persuade the Corinthians that he was just another one of these super apostles. If the Corinthian Christians thought Paul was weak and different from these super apostles, that's fine with him. But he wanted the Corinthians to see the glory of God expressed in weakness, not to see him as great as these super apostles claim to be. So why was Paul given this vision? First, he was given it for you and me so that we would benefit from what the Lord showed Paul. Secondly, he was given it because God told him through his vision, uh, sustained him through all the trials and ministry, and enabled Paul to give everything God wanted him to give to all generations. This vision helped Paul finish his course. Verse 7. And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. So Paul's vision was so impressive that it would have been easy for him to be exalted above measure by the abundance of revelations. He could have gloried in himself or caused others to glory in him because of that experience. Paul was not immune to the danger of pride. nobody is. The best of God's people have in them a root of pride, or a disposition to be exalted above measure, upon their receipt of favors from God not common to others. So, to prevent being exalted above measure, Paul was given a thorn in the flesh. In this, Paul reveals the real reason for telling of his heavenly vision, not to glorify himself, but to explain his thorn in the flesh. And so... It seems that everybody could see this thorn in the flesh that Paul suffered from, and it was no secret. His heavenly vision was a secret until now, but everybody saw the thorn. Some among the Corinthians probably thought less of Paul because of that thorn in the flesh, but they knew nothing of the, amer- uh, the amazing spiritual experience that laid behind it. And so what is the thorn in the flesh? When we think of a thorn, we think of a somewhat minor irritation, but the root word that Paul used for thorn here describes a tent stake, not a thumbtack. And so in the ancient greek translation of the old testament known as the septuagint the word "skolops" or thorn will show something which frustrates and causes trouble in the lives of those afflicted so in a strange way the thorn was given ultimately given by god but it was also a messenger of satan satan probably jumped at god's permission to afflict paul and did so with malice towards the apostle But God had a purpose in it all and allowed Satan's messenger to successfully keep Paul from being exalted above measure. To buffet me means that this thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan, punched Paul. He felt that he was beaten black and blue by this messenger of Satan. So it's interesting to consider what a counselor without a biblical perspective might have said to Paul. Imagine that Paul tells the counselor about his great infirmity, his troublesome thorn in the flesh, and how Paul feels weak and powerless to continue on against it. We might imagine that the counselor would say, well, Paul, what you need is a positive mental outlook to meet this problem. Or he might say, Paul, the power is within you to conquer this infirmity. You should look deep within the inner man and find the resources for success. Or perhaps the counselor would tell Paul, you know, what you really need is a support group of caring individuals. Uh, He might even suggest that Paul take medication for depression or he might even seek to challenge Paul by saying, Paul, if you really had faith, you would be delivered from this thorn in the flesh, you know, uh, much like Job's friends did to him. Some of this advice might be good in different circumstances, but Paul was going to take his problem to the wonderful counselor, Jesus Christ, and he has something different to say. Verse 8, concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. So Paul did exactly what he told others to do in a time of trouble. Paul believed for himself what he wrote in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, where he says, "...be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be, known be made known to God." So in fact, Paul repeatedly prayed about this thorn in the flesh. We can imagine that when this thorn in the flesh first appeared, Paul thought, this is not a problem, I'll just give it to the Lord in prayer. But nothing happened when he prayed, so he thought, well, this is a tough one, and he prayed again. When nothing happened after praying the third time, he knew that God was trying to tell him something. And some think that Paul is using a Hebrew figure of speech that really means much more than three times. Uh, But it does not mean three times. It is a Hebrew figure for ceaselessly, continuously, over and over again. Some say it's unspiritual and evidence of little faith to pray for something more than once. Uh, That would be surprising to Paul because he, he pleaded with the Lord three times here, and to Jesus who prayed with the same words three times in his agony in the Garden of Gethsemane in Mark 14. But there was nothing wrong with Paul's prayer. And Paul's prayer on this matter was passionate. We wonder if he wasn't surprised when the prayer was not answered the first or second time. And Paul's initial prayer was to escape the suffering this thorn in the flesh brought him. Um, Paul was no masochist. When he suffered, his first instinct was to ask God to take that suffering away. So when his passionate and repeated plea was not answered, it must have concerned Paul. It added another dimension to this trial. It had a physical dimension, a thorn in the flesh. It had a mental dimension, it was a messenger of Satan. And it had a spiritual dimension in that it was an unanswered prayer. So what exactly was Paul's thorn in the flesh? We simply don't have enough information to say precisely, but of course that hasn't prevented many commentators and teachers from giving their opinion about it. Uh, Some out there will see it mainly as spiritual harassment, others will think of it as persecution. Many will suggest that it was a physical or a mental ailment. Some say this was Paul's struggle with lustful and sinful thoughts. Among Christians, Tertullian gave the earliest recorded guess at the exact nature of Paul's problem. He thought the thorn in the flesh was an earache or a headache. In the more modern times, historian Sir William Ramsey offered the suggestion that Paul's infirmity was a type of malaria that was common to the area where he served at as a missionary. Uh, sufferers of this type of malaria experience attacks when under stress, and they feel a contempt and loathing for self and believe that others feel equal contempt and loathing. This malarial fever also produced severe headaches, described by sufferers as being like a, like a red-hot bar thrust through the forehead. But even if these suggestions is possible, but God had, you know, each of those views could be totally possible, but God had a definite purpose in not revealing the exact nature of Paul's thorn. If we knew exactly what Paul's thorn was, then everybody who was afflicted, but not in exactly the same way, might doubt that Paul's experience was even relevant for them. God wanted everybody with any kind of thorn in the flesh to be able to put themselves into Paul's shoes. Verse 9 and 10. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness, therefore most gladly will I will rather boast in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and needs and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So God had a response for Paul. Uh, The answer was not what Paul initially hoped for or expected. But God still had a response for Paul nonetheless. We will often close our ears to God if he responds in a way that we do not hope for or expect. So we should be praying for understanding. So instead of removing the thorn from Paul's life, God gave and would keep giving his grace to Paul. The grace God gave Paul was sufficient to meet his every need. Note it—you know it's need, not want. So Paul was desperate in his desire to find relief from the burden But there are two ways of relief it can come by removing the load or by strengthening the shoulder that bears the load so instead of taking away the thorn god strengthened paul under it and god would show his strength through paul's apparent weakness to do this paul had to believe that god's grace was sufficient we really don't believe god's grace is sufficient until we believe that we are insufficient for many of us especially in american culture this is a huge obstacle We are the people who idolize this self-made man, and we want to rely on ourselves. But we can't receive God's strength until we know our weakness. We can't receive the sufficiency of God's grace until we know our own insufficiency. And so how did God's grace make the difference? How did it meet Paul's need at this point? Grace could meet Paul's need because it expressed God's acceptance and pleasure in us. When we receive his grace, we enjoy our our status of favor and approval in God's eyes. Grace means that God likes us, and he's favorably disposed towards us, and that we have his approval and promise of care. And grace could meet Paul's need because it was available all the time. When we sin or fail, it doesn't put us outside the reach of God's grace. Since grace is given freely to us in Jesus, it cannot be taken away later because we stumble or fall. When we come to God by faith through the blood of Jesus, His grace is ever ready to meet to us, uh, to meet us, and to minister to our insufficiencies. And so, grace could meet Paul's need because it was in itself the very strength of God. So much of the power of this world is expressed in things that can only bring harm and destruction, but God loves to show His power through His goodness and grace. Sometimes we will associate goodness with cowardice and uh, being timid. Uh, when we do, we take a worldly perspective about power and strength, and we deny God's truth about the strength of grace and love. Grace is not weak or wimpy. Instead, it is the power of God to fulfill what we lack. So my grace is sufficient for you, and you may emphasize any aspect of this you please. My grace is sufficient for you. Grace is the favor and love of God in action. It means he loves us and is pleased by us. Can you hear it from God? God. Where he says, my love is enough for you. So isn't that true? He says, my grace is sufficient for you. Whose grace is it? It's the grace of Jesus. Isn't his love, his favor enough? What will Jesus fail at? Remember too that Jesus suffered thorns. So he cares and he knows. And so my grace is sufficient for you. It is right now. Not that it'll be someday, but right now, at this very moment, His grace is sufficient. You thought something had to change before His grace would be enough? You thought His grace was sufficient once? His grace may be sufficient again, but not now, or not with what I'm going through? Uh, Well, despite that feeling, God's word stands. It is sufficient for you. And uh, my grace is sufficient. So do you see the humor of the situation? God's grace, me his grace sufficient for little old me how how absurd to think that it could ever be any different as if a little fish could swim in the ocean in fear uh that it might drink that ocean dry uh, the grace of our crucified risen exalted triumphant savior the lord of all glory is surely sufficient for me do you not think it's rather modest of the lord to say sufficient and it's also for you i'm so glad it didn't say my grace is sufficient for paul the apostle i might feel left out Uh, But God made it broad enough. You can be the you in for you. And so God's grace is sufficient for you. Are you beyond it? Are you so different? Is your thorn thorn in the flesh worse than Paul's or worse than many others who have known the triumph of Jesus? Uh, Well, of course not. This grace is sufficient for you. And so through his infirmities, God made Paul completely dependent on his grace and on his strength. But it was all for good. Paul's continued and even forced dependence upon God made him stronger than he would have ever been if his revelations had made him proud and self-sufficient. Many of us think that real Christian maturity is when we come to a place where we are somewhat independent of God. The idea is that we have our acts so together that we don't need to rely on God so much day to day or moment to moment. This is not Christian maturity at all. God deliberately engineered debilitating circumstances into Paul's life so that he would be in constant total dependence on God's grace and God's strength. Many people see God as a parent that we just outgrow. Once we're mature and once we have overcome certain obstacles in life, we can just shake off God and uh, just the same as we shook off the authority of our parents. In this type of pattern, some of us will treat God the same way that we treat our parents. We give Him a measure of respect. We give Him His due but we no longer feel that we really have to obey him anymore in our hearts we have moved out of the house we think that we can make our own rules in life as long as we have supper at god's house once a week and give him a little recognition and many harbor a longing for the day when the christian life will become easy we hope for a time when the major struggles with sin are behind us and we and now we go on to bigger and better things without much of a struggle that day is an illusion If the Apostle Paul himself constantly experienced weakness, then who are we to think that we will surpass him? In fact, the illusion of strength and independence actually leaves someone in a weaker place. There is nothing more hindering to the work of God than an uplifted and proud Christian. And so in the end, Paul does not resign himself to his fate, he welcomes it. He rejoices that God has forced him to rely on the grace and strength of God all the more so he can say, when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul was at such a level of spiritual strength and maturity that God had to deliberately introduce a thorn in the flesh. Most of us will provide our own thorns, and an honest look will show us enough weakness to make us constantly and totally rely on the grace and strength of Jesus. Yet even if we were to grow to the spiritual strength and maturity of a Paul, uh, God would say to us as well, I need to keep you depending on me in everything, so here's something to depend on me for. This is a place of victory, not discouragement. And so Paul's pleasure in infirmities is not the sick musing of an uh, of an ascetic, thinking that we are justified before God by our sufferings. Paul did not seek out his thorn in the flesh. It came to him. So the concept, so pernicious to, in the church at a later date, of courting martyrdom, of practicing asceticism, and even embracing dirt, disease, and destitution as means of the acquisition of favor before God, is diametrically opposed to the apostle's mind and the whole tenor of the gospel in the New Testament. For it is a concept governing a way of life for one's own sake, with the view of making oneself righteous and acceptable before God. It's a concept of works, not faith." So he says, When I am weak, then I am strong. So what a triumph here. What can the world do to such a man so firm in the grip of Jesus? God did not allow this thorn in the flesh to punish Paul or to keep him weak for the sake of weakness, God allowed it to show a divine strength in Paul. So think about this man, Paul. Was he a weak or a strong man? The man who traveled the ancient world spreading the gospel of Jesus despite the fiercest persecutions, who endured shipwrecks and imprisonment, who preached to kings and slaves, who established strong churches and trained up their leaders, was not a weak man. In light of his life and accomplishments, we could say that Paul was a very strong man. But he was only strong because he knew his weaknesses and looked outside of himself for the strength of God's grace. If we want lives of such strength, then we also must understand and admit our weaknesses and look to God alone for the grace that will strengthen us for any task. It was the grace-filled Paul who said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me in Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. So to summarize, instead of using his experience to glorify himself as the super apostles among the Corinthians did, Paul relates how his whole glorious experience humbled him more than ever. So all Paul's enemies could see was the thorn. They could not see and how and, like, how and why it was there. But Paul knew, so he rejoiced even in his thorn in the flesh. And of course, the greatest example of the principle that Paul communicates here was lived by Jesus himself. Could anyone on earth be more meek than the Son of God to be hung on the cross, who hung in our place that he might redeem us from our sins? As that point of absolute weakness was met with mighty power of God as he raised him from the dead, I wonder if the pressure of the thorn in Paul's life was a reminder of the power of the cross. Yet, we should never think that in our lives, the mere presence of a thorn means the glory and strength of Jesus would shine in us and through us. You can resist God's grace and refuse to set your mind on Jesus and then find your thorn cursing you instead of blessing you. So, without the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit, thorns are productive of evil rather than good. In many people, their thorn in the flesh does not appear to have fulfilled any admirable design at all. Instead, it will have created another vice, instead of removing a temptation. Verse 11-13 through I have become a fool in boasting, you have compelled me. For I ought to have been commended by you, for in nothing was I behind the most eminent apostles, though I am nothing." Truly, the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance and signs and wonders and mighty deeds. So, what is it in which you were inferior to the other churches, except that I myself was not burdensome to you? Forgive me this wrong. So, since he began this section in Second Corinthians chapter ten, verse one, Paul was forced to boast more than he wanted before the Corinthian Christians. Paul is almost apologizing for writing so much about himself because he would much rather write about Jesus. So if Paul thought his boasting was foolish, why did he do it at all? Well, it wasn't for his sake, but for the sake of the Corinthians. They did not defend Paul's character in standing as an apostle before the most eminent apostles who criticized and undermined Paul. And it wasn't so much of the presence of these eminent apostles that bothered Paul, it was their influence among the Corinthians that bothered the true apostle here. And so, Paul could also point to the signs and wonders and mighty deeds that were accomplished among the Corinthians. Each of these was evidence of Paul's apostolic standing. So, if Paul was inferior in any way, it's only in that he refused to take money from the Corinthians. So, he sarcastically asked their forgiveness. Forgive me this wrong. And so... It is the privilege of the churches of Christ to support the ministry of his gospel among them. Those who do not contribute their part to support of the gospel ministry either care nothing for it or derive no good from it. Verse 14 through 18. Now for the third time I'm ready to come to you and I will not be burdensome to you for I do not seek yours but you for the children ought to not lay up for the parents but the parents for the children and I will... Very gladly spend and be spent for your souls, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I am loved. But be that as it may, I did not burden you. Nevertheless, being crafty, I caught you by cunning. Did I take advantage of you by those by any of those means whom I sent to you? I urged Titus and sent our brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not walk in the same spirit? Did we not walk in the same steps? So, on his first visit to Corinth, Paul founded the church and stayed a year and six months, and that's in Acts 18, verse 11. His second brief, um, his second visit was brief, uh, and it was a painful visit in between the writing of 1st and 2nd Corinthians. So, now he's prepared to come for a third time. And Paul's going to let the Corinthians know that when he comes, though he will receive a collection for the saints in Judea, 2nd Corinthians chapter 8, He will not receive money from them for his personal support. He will continue his previous practice among the Corinthians of supporting himself, and he will not be burdensome to these Corinthians. So a minister may be burdensome to a congregation by receiving support when it is not appropriate or by receiving too much support. So he who labors for the cause of God should be supported by the cause of God. But woe to that man who aggrandizes himself and grows rich by the spoils of the faithful, and to him especially who has made a fortune out of the pence of the poor. In such a man's heart the love of money must have its throne. As to his professed spirituality, it is nothing. He is a whited sepulcher. And an abomination in the sight of the Lord. And so those are strong words, and I mean them wholeheartedly. And so this, I do not seek yours but you, is going to be a testimony of a every godly minister. They do not serve for what they can get from God's people, but for what they can give to God's people. They are shepherds, not hirelings. And this is the heart of Jesus towards us. We often think that what God really wants is what we have, but he really wants us Jesus selflessly seeks our good, and his heart is for us, not for what he can get from us. And so, the children ought to not lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. This is going to explain part of the reason why Paul did not want to receive support from the Corinthian Christians. Since he was their spiritual father, and they were his spiritual children, it made sense that they should not feel burdened to support him. At the same time, this is not a compliment towards the Corinthians. Since Paul did gratefully receive support from the other churches in Philippians chapter 4 as an example, uh, we know that this was not his policy towards all churches. Instead, it's as if Paul is saying, you Corinthians are not mature enough to support me yet, you're still children. Uh, When you grow up some, you can be partners with me in the work and support me, but until then, I'm glad to support myself. And so Paul did not resent the lack of support from the Corinthians. Uh, I will very gladly spend to be spent for your souls. Certainly he would have appreciated it, but more for what it said about them than for what it did for him. For himself, Paul was glad to give. He would very gladly spend to be spent for your souls. So Paul had this heart, even though the Corinthians were unappreciative. In fact, Paul puts it painfully, The more abundantly I love you, the less I am loved. There is hurt in those words. Yet Paul did not allow that hurt to cripple him or even rob him of his joy in serving and living. He would still very gladly spend and be spent for the Corinthian Christians. And we can give and do it in a, in a number of ways. But do we resent it when we give or serve? A good way to measure this is to see our reaction when our service is unappreciated. Do we resent that? Uh, Paul's service was unappreciated by the Corinthians, yet he did not resent it. Instead, he would very gladly spend and be spent for your souls. And so, nevertheless, being crafty, I caught you with guile. So here, Paul is being sarcastic again. Some among the Corinthians accused Paul of being crafty. Their accusation probably went like this. Sure, Paul won't take any support money from you, but he will trick you by taking the collection that is supposed to be for the Jerusalem Christians, and then he's going to put it in his own pocket. In response, Paul sarcastically said, You bet I'm being crafty. I caught you with guile and tricked you superbly. So Paul's opponents, these fake apostles, that's mentioned in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and chapter 12, verse 11, were in ministry at least partly for the money. They could not bear the fact that Paul didn't care about money in the ministry, so they assigned their motives to him. And some have thought that Paul spoke seriously here and admitted that he was crafty and used guile in his ministry to the Corinthians. And so, many persons will suppose that the words, being crafty, I caught you with guile, are the words of the apostle and not of his slanderers, and therefore have concluded that it is lawful to use guile, deceit, in order to serve the good and religious purpose. This doctrine is abominable, and the words are most evidently those of the apostles' detractors against which he defends his conduct in the two following verses. And so Paul's going to prove that the charge that he is being crafty is false. He reminds the Corinthians that neither Paul nor any of his associates had ever behaved in a financially inappropriate way before the Corinthians. Verse 19 through 21, again, do you think that we excuse ourselves to you? we speak before god in christ but we do all things beloved for your edification for i fear lest when i come i shall not find you such as i wish and that i shall be found by you such as you do not wish lest there be contentions jealousies outbursts of wrath selfish ambitions backbitings whisperings conceit Tumults, lest when I come again, my God will humble me among you, and I shall mourn for many who have sinned before and have not repented of the uncleanness, fornication, and lewdness which they have practiced. So, Paul is concerned that his defense before the Corinthians may be taken as just excuse making, but Paul is not making excuses. He has nothing to excuse. Instead, he boldly proclaims, "We speak before God and Christ." Paul proclaimed the truth before God, not excusing himself before the Corinthians. Everything that Paul did for the Corinthian Christians, he did to build them up to the Lord. Every letter he wrote, every visit he made, every prayer he made with, was with one goal, to build up the Corinthians in Jesus Christ. His heart was for them, not for himself. If Paul's opponents, these fake apostles that's mentioned in 2 Corinthians chapter 11-12, and 12, were to speak honestly, they, they would say, we do all things beloved for our edification. But Paul was a different kind of man here. And so Paul is worried that he would find the same old problems among the Corinthians when he visits a third time and they would still be unrepentant. And just so they know exactly what Paul is writing about, he makes it very clear. Lest there be contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, backbitings, whisperings, conceits, tumults. All of these were the fruit of the worldly thinking the Corinthian Christians bought into. And these had to change before Paul came to visit for a third time to Corinth. And so looking forward to his next visit, Paul warns the Corinthian Christians, if they are not in a state pleasing to Paul before the Lord, then they will find him to be in a state not pleasing to them. And so if the Corinthians were still stuck in their worldly thinking, Paul would be humbled among them. He would have a reason to think, I must not be a very good apostle or a leader because these Corinthians will not respond to me. Uh, That's not the whole truth, but it would still humble Paul. And said he said I shall mourn for many if the Corinthians were mired in their worldliness when Paul came for the third time he was going to be angry and he would be firm but he would also be humbled and he would also mourn so as much as anything the worldliness of the Corinthians grieved Paul and made him mourn for many and so Paul's anger and mourning would not be directed to those who had sinned more specifically it would be directed at those who have sinned before and have not repented Paul did not ask for perfection here, he only asked for repentance.